I want to read to us from Hebrews chapter 10 today, verses 19 through 25. Be thinking about that passage, the, the more extended passage, but I want to read these verses to us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I've officiated at my fair share of weddings and have never, to my knowledge, pronounced people husband and wife who were expecting to get divorced later on. The people who get married in a ceremony that I officiate promise to remain married to each other as long as they both shall live. They bind themselves to one another in a covenant before witnesses and before God, and they do it with solemn vows and the giving and receiving of rings and the joining of hands. They don't enter into marriage. You get married at Lockwood, you don't enter into marriage unadvisedly or lightly. Most of the people that, for whom I've officiated a marriage ceremony have stayed married, but not all. Yet I'm pretty sure that every one of them intended to stay married. So what happened to those who didn't? Were they crossing their fingers as they made their vows? Thank you. I'm going to bring that guy up here front because, man, he'll get me pumped up. Didn't they mean what they said? These people started with a vision of what married life would be like, and that vision, it appealed to them. With that vision before them, they made a decision to get married. But many of them didn't know and didn't do what it actually takes to wed their lives to the life of another person. And so they didn't stay married. Making the choice and saying the vows is good, but it's not enough. It's that way with the choice to become God's person. And that's the choice we're thinking about today, the choice to be God's person. We have a vision of what being God's person will be like peaceful, purposeful, joyful, a life of obedience, confidence, friendship, life that makes a difference in the world. That vision leads to a choice. I made that choice in a small church in Elyria, Ohio, when I responded to an invitation to trust Christ as my Savior. I chose to be his person. But I didn't know and often didn't do what it actually takes to be his person. I was fortunate, though, to have people who helped me along the way. And, and was graced by God to stick with him when things got tough. Or who knows where I'd be today. Some people 
see the vision of what it likes it's it is to be God's person and they make the choice and then later on they shrink away from their choice we see that in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 through 31 are solemnly warn of the possibility of falling away it's one of the most serious warnings in the bible Verses 38 through 39 refer to people who shrink back, displease God, and whose lives are ruined. How do we avoid becoming those people? How can our lives be so wedded and welded to Christ that we remain with him forever? In the 37 years I've been leading churches, I have seen people fall away. And not just from the church, but seemingly from the Lord. They no longer demonstrate any interest in God or his kingdom or his people. It's as if that whole thing of God belonged to a former life. And in some cases, they're people who I never would have imagined would shrink back. So what happened? We've been talking about what's necessary for genuine, lasting change to take place. Becoming God's person requires such change. For it to occur... We need a vision of the life to which we're called and the God who is calling us. Some people fail because their vision is distorted from the very beginning. It's a vision about feeling a certain way. Or they picture themselves glorified in heaven someday after remaining unchanged on earth. Those are false visions. But even if the vision is true, even if it's good, it's not enough. A person must do more than see what life could be. They must choose to have it. God designed us in such a way that choice is necessary. He made us choosing creatures. We must choose. And yet choice is not enough. Vision and choice are absolutely necessary to lasting change, but are completely insufficient to sustain it. People who get married have a vision and make a choice. But those things will not, on their own, sustain their marriage. And and the overall divorce rate of about 50% makes that painfully clear. They need to add to their vision and choice the practices that will support their vision and choice. It works the same way in the choice to be God's person. And every other major choice we make. So let's say your best friend moves to Hawaii. And you're really sad that your best friend has moved to Hawaii. He, he tells you, every time you talk to him, he tells you about how great Hawaii is. It's so laid back. The weather's fantastic. The people are kind. There's good jobs available. And every time he calls you, he tells you that you ought to move to Hawaii too. You ought to come. It's great here. And in your mind's eye, you begin to picture what life would be like in Hawaii. Okay? That's vision. You find yourself thinking about it more and more frequently. And one day you realize you have a choice to make. Are are you really going to do this? Are you going to leave Coldwater and your friends and your family, your house? Are you going to quit your job and move to Hawaii? That's choice. The magnitude of the choice is daunting. Will you really do it? One day you make up your mind. You will. You say, I'm moving to Hawaii, and you mean it. Now you must give your decision fuel. You need to start a job search. Go on interviews. 
You need to see a realtor. You're going to have to sell your house. You need to get rid of things. There'll need to be a sale. That pool table in the basement isn't going. If you don't engage in practices like these, the real choice you made will be meaningless in a month. A life change choice like moving to Hawaii or the much bigger choice of becoming God's person. It's like starting a fire and the choice itself is like lighting a match. You light the match, but without kindling, without sticks and logs, that match will burn out and that'll be the end of the fire. In the same way, choices burn out without fuel. You need to feed the fire. If the choice is the all-important choice to join Jesus and his people, what is the fuel on which it feeds? What will help us make the choice count and turn the vision into reality in our lives? What will help us avoid the disaster that befalls those who shrink back? I think we can identify three things in the passage that I read to you that will help us. These are things that we do. They're not things that somebody else does for us or that God does for us. They're things we do, but they originate in what God has already done. We are following the way that Jesus opened for us. That's verse 21. And are relying on him as the great priest over the house of God. If we try to forge a different way than the one Jesus opened, we'll be disappointed. The first of the three things that we can do to transform choice, the choice to trust Christ, and a lasting change into Christ-likeness is found in verse 22. Because Jesus established a covenant for us with God through his sacrifice, because of that, we draw near to God. We approach him, assured he will accept us and help us, because we're coming as Jesus' people. God has already accepted Jesus' sacrifice and entered into a covenant of peace with his people. He's promised help to his people. Now, let's say you've made the choice to be God's person. You've believed in Jesus. You've submitted yourself to him. But you won't make good on that choice without God's help. And yet, it is amazing to me to see how many people try. They want to be Christians, but from all appearances... They're not interested in God. Unless that changes, failure's guaranteed. Now that kind of thing stems from a faulty vision, often the warped vision of going to heaven without coming to God, which is intrinsically impossible, yet people try it. If the vision, that first component of change, is distorted, the choice, which is the second component of lasting change, will be short-lived. The Christian life is what Richard Foster calls the with God life. You can't live the with God life without God. If you try, you'll end up like those in verse 38 who shrink back. If you're going to succeed, you need God's help. You must draw near to God. You do this largely by prayer which, as Kevin mentioned a few moments ago, is a spiritual practice we're going to work on as a church for the next three months. The author of Hebrews has already used the word that's translated here as draw near back in chapter 4. 
There he wrote, let us then approach, and that's the word, same word we have here, the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And boy, do we have needs. And the resources that we need are found with God. If we keep our distance from him, the life we're seeking will keep its distance from us. We must draw near to him. Drawing near to God is not an emotional experience, though it will often lead to one. You can't draw near to God while you're refusing to follow his orders. You can't draw near to God when you're filled with resentment toward his people. You can't draw near to God when you're stuck in pride. And yet you must draw near to God in order to change. Or put another way, if you draw near to God, you will change. You can't help but change. So let me ask you a question. And try to be honest with yourself. When was the last time you thoughtfully and intentionally approached God? Did you do it today? Or did you just go to church? Did you do it during the week? to worship him or to offer service or to receive guidance and resources. You need what God provides in order to genuinely and lastingly change, which is another way of saying in order to live the Christian life. If you come to God as Jesus' person, he will provide you with what you need to change. The biggest reason people fail is not that they don't know what to do, but that they don't go to the one who can help. If we're going to change in a positive, lasting way, we must draw near to God repeatedly. If we do, we will change. And next, we must, this is verse 23 now, hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Now that goes back to vision. Or... Rather, it reminds us to keep the vision before us. We mustn't let go of the vision. Let me give you an example. Let's say I want to learn Russian. I have a vision, and I did have a vision, this vision, for a brief time. And I shrunk back from it, back in my 20s, of learning Russian so that I could read Dostoevsky in his own language and so that I could teach Russian literature in university. That's vision. I go beyond envisioning it. I choose it. I choose to learn Russian. That's choice. Then I start engaging in the practices that feed the fire. So in this case, maybe I go by Rosetta Stone's Russian language learning program, and I download Babbel.com to my phone, and I spend an hour a day learning Russian. But you know what? If I let go of the vision, if I don't keep hold of the hope of reading Dostoevsky in his own language and teaching Russian lit in university, I'll give up. Learning Russian's hard. I'll procrastinate. Things will get in the way of spending that hour studying, I'll shrink back if I don't keep the vision before me. Change not only requires vision to start, but also to continue. So the author urges us to hold unswervingly to the hope 
we profess. Grab it with both hands and don't let go. We keep the hope before our eyes. But we do more than that. We profess it, or literally we confess it. We tell others of our hope. We speak it out loud. Time magazine once asked Archbishop Desmond Tutu, the Archbishop, South African Archbishop, after all you've seen and endured, are you really optimistic? And that great man answered, I'm not optimistic. No, I'm quite different. I'm hopeful. Optimism is about how you feel. It's located in you. Hope is about who you trust. It's located outside of you in the faithfulness of the one who promised. Like Archbishop Tutu, I'm not an optimist. That's not my makeup. But I'm hopeful, and hope is growing. My end is going to be better than my beginning. I will love my wife more fully than ever before. I will be more grateful for my life than I have been or that I am now. I will know God, his love more completely, his guidance more surely, his heart more truly. Love will fill me more and more, and there will be ever less room for anything else. The very name of the Lord Jesus Christ will make my heart sing. My days will become more like extended worship times. Contentment will rise, and then when I die, it may take some time for me to notice that I've moved from earth to heaven because I've been so full of heaven already. See, my hope is not to avoid hell when I die by going to heaven into a God I don't love. God is my hope. Heaven is the happy byproduct. I knew a guy who came back from Vietnam in 1970. He might have been 71. One day he said to me, let me show you something. And he opened his wallet, and there was this little faded picture of a, a log cabin nestled in pines on the side of a mountain. He told me it was in Colorado. He carried that picture with him all the time he was in Vietnam. He looked at it every day he was in country. He kept telling himself, I'm going to live in that cabin. He had taken hold of hope, and he wouldn't let it go. On his darkest days, he professed his hope. It's what brought him back. The, the picture I carry in my metaphorical wallet is that my end will be better than my beginning, a supernatural life of service, full of God, full of love and joy, and overflowing with peace. For change, and particularly the change into a Christ-like, useful to God, loving, joyful disciple of Jesus, for change to last, we must draw near to God. We need him. We must hold on to our hope and confess it. Say it out loud. But there's yet another element to lasting change. And that is others. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The Christian life is not a solo performance. John Wesley once said, the New Testament 
knows nothing of solitary religion. We need other people. Spurgeon was right. It's hard to build a fire with just one log. We need others. But not only do we need other people, we need to be a blessing to other people. In the 1930s, Bill Wilson and Bob Smith discovered the best way to stay sober. The best way to stay sober is to help other people stay sober. That was the genius behind Alcoholics Anonymous. Genuine, positive, lasting change rarely happens in people who are disconnected. The life Jesus modeled for us had a rhythm of solitude and companionship, isolation and engagement. We need both. It's as we help other people that change happens in us. And that's why the self-centered religion that is so popular in the world keeps producing people who are stagnant and stuck in a rut. It's why people whose religion is nothing more than sanctified self-help never seem to get any help. They're not engaged with others for others' sake. Verse 24 says literally, and let us consider one another unto a paroxysm. Do you know that word? The English word is just transliterated. It's a Greek word that we've just slid over into English. Into a paroxysm, we would say an outburst of love and good deeds. The author is not telling us to consider how to get people to do loving good deeds. He is telling us to consider people. This is not a technique that we're supposed to consider, but the people who are part of our church family. So I don't think about how to get you to do something. I think about you. I pray for you. Consider you, your strengths and weaknesses, what you have to give and what you need. And as I do this, something happens in me an outburst of love that expresses itself in good deeds. And guess who changes? Me. I don't know whether you'll change or not, but I'm already being changed just by considering you. We can do this individually, and we must, but it's even better to do it together. In a small group, a Sunday school class, that one of the classes... The one that I'm going to be working with Jim Starr on. I, I thought we ought to call this marching orders because this is what it's all about. How you think about, consider, and burst into love and good deeds for others. Not just how. We're going to do it week by week. When that happens in a group, the whole group has this creative outburst of love that finds its fruition in good deeds, and the whole group and the individuals in it are changed. And you know what happens? Those people progressively are removed from the ranks of those who will shrink away. And all this happens with the church, not in isolation, it. That's why the author goes right on to say in verse 25, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day of approaching. You know, I've heard people say again and again, well, you don't need to go to church every week. 
as if that relic of legalism is the most ridiculous thing they ever heard. And legalism is ridiculous. But, but you know what? Statistics bear out how widespread that belief is. A couple years ago, a denominational executive told me and a small group of guys that churches now need to grow by 10% a year in order to maintain their average attendance. So if you want to maintain an average attendance of 450, you have to grow 10%. That didn't make any sense to me until he explained that more and more people come to church less and less often. And that's even true at Lockwood. We have more people here, I think, than we ever have. During a period of 11 weeks, we had over 700 people in worship. But our average attendance is about 450. People are attending regularly. That's not the problem. But more people attend regularly less than half the time than those who attend regularly more than half the time. That is a problem for a number of reasons. It's a problem for us in terms of communication. It becomes really challenging. The announcement we made last week, the really important one that everybody needed to know, we have to assume that somewhere between a half and two-thirds of the people who call Lockwood their church home didn't hear it. That's a challenge. Finances are problematic. Continuity in ministry is impaired, but more than anything else, it's a problem because people don't think about each other in a way that leads to an outburst of love and good deeds. They don't encourage each other, invest in each other, and that leaves them in danger of shrinking back. We need to be involved helping others. All right, the things we've talked about, drawing near to God, intentionally holding hope before our eyes and drawing near to one another that fuels change in us. Now think about those three things. You've heard those three things before. They can be summed up in terms that are very familiar. Faith, verse 22. Hope, verse 23. Love, verse 24. Let us draw near to God, verse 22 says, in full assurance of faith. Verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Verse 24, and let us consider one another in a way that leads to an outburst of love and good deeds. Faith, hope, and love. The catalyst for genuine, positive, lasting change. All right, let's bow our heads. And I'm going to give you a moment to ask God if he wants to say anything to you from this message. It's just possible that he wants to talk to you about something. Would you ask him, Lord, is there something you're saying to me right now? And listen for a response. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. Help us to make good on what we've told you. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing. And as we do, those who help us with communion can come forward.